away and winter's right behind it. Well, I'm glad you're back. We are continuing our study of how to understand the Bible. This is week seven of the study. So we are seven weeks into it. I want to commend you for your perseverance through the study and where we're at with it. So I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're finding it beneficial. Uh, there's only four more after tonight as we finish up this study. And we're going to be looking at, not tonight, but in the four weeks to come, how do we understand parables? How do we understand the epistles? How do we understand special forms of speech and language? That's exaggeration, hyperbole, things like that. And we have a week on study helps and things like resources to help you as you seek to understand the Bible. So that's what's still coming over the next four weeks. Over the last three weeks, we talked about the different genres of Scripture. And if you remember, a genre was something that was distinct in its literary form. And we talked about different genres, and each genre had different rules, different principles for interpretation. We saw the genres of historical narrative, and in poetry, and in Proverbs. And I know last week may have been a stretch for some of you. The first time I ever was challenged with how I view Proverbs was when I started seminary. I remember the first time I sat in one of my hermeneutics classes. Hermeneutics is how you understand and interpret the Bible. The professor challenged us with some of the things on Proverbs that I mentioned last week. I was going, this can't be right. I don't like this. It really stretched a lot of my understanding. But the more I began to read and the more I began to think about it, the more I became persuaded. And so let me just encourage you. If last week some of the stuff was a stretch from what you historically understood, don't let that bother you. Just Keep, keep thinking, keep growing on that. It's good for us to be challenged in, in how we understand things. I want to remind us of the big picture of why we're doing this. It bears mentioning every week. We study how to understand the Bible because we want to know God. This is about knowing Him. It's not about just an academic discipline, but we want to know God. And if we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, we need to know Him as He's revealed Himself to us. And as we seek to do that, again, we seek to do that understanding each genre and the principles behind that. And that leads us to tonight, to at least for what it to me is the hardest genre to interpret, and that's prophecy. I don't know about for you guys, when I look at some things like parables next week, I'm super excited about teaching that one. That's really straightforward. That seems pretty easy to me. But prophecy, oh my goodness, this leads to lots of confusion in the lives of believers. And so we're going to talk about this more difficult understanding of how do we understand prophecy. So as we begin on your handout there, what is biblical prophecy? Start on the front page. I've given you Deuteronomy 18 as a text to get us thinking for this evening. Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 9, just follow along. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns the sons or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a saucer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. Whoever does the things, these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God, for these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Now, verse 15, there's a reason that's included in there, by the way. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desire to the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Now put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. If you say in your heart, how may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true... That is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be 
afraid of him. Well, that's going to kind of set the stage as what we're talking about tonight in terms of how do we understand prophecy. So turn to the next page in your handout. We get to the genre of prophecy. First of all, what is prophecy? Well, first of all, I gave you the longer passage of Deuteronomy because prophecy is not the same thing as fortune telling. And you see that in that contrast to what we were just looking at in Deuteronomy. You have God or Moses speaking here to us, God's words to us. Then when you come into land, you're not to follow those abominable practices of the nations who do sorcery, who are basically trying to be diviners of what is to come. Prophecy is very, very different than that. Prophecy is what verse 18 of that Deuteronomy passage says. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. So a prophecy is a message from God. A prophecy is simply a spirit-inspired utterance that is given to God's people, and it comes through a prophet. So a prophecy is a message from God, a spirit-inspired utterance. And then what is a prophet? A prophet is someone who is sent by God with a message from God. A prophet is someone sent by God with a message from God. They are God's messengers. They don't share their own ideas. That's why prophets come saying, thus saith the Lord. Very often you'll find throughout the prophecies, you'll, at least as they're recorded for us in the scriptures, it'll begin something like this. The word of the Lord came to the prophet name and then fill in the blank with the prophecy. Why? Because it's God's words that were given to the prophet, the messenger, to give to the people. And so to listen to the prophet is to listen to God and vice versa. Back in verse 19 of that Deuteronomy text we were just reading, it said, And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God's saying, if you don't listen to the prophet, you're not listening to me. If you ignore the prophet, ignore God, because the prophet is simply God's messenger. With that said, there's a warning here because there are the true prophets who are the messengers from God. But also throughout history, there are false prophets, people who claim to speak for God, but they really are not. And again, our Deuteronomy text warns us of that back in verse 20 through 22. Verse 20, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. In verse 20, if you say in your heart, how do we know or how may we know that the word of the Lord has not spoken? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is the word that the Lord has not spoken. And so we see that whatever comes true from a prophet of God, we know God was behind that. And friends, this warning about false prophets does apply to today because there are lots of people who parade around the world saying, God told me to tell you, or God said this, and if it's not backed up with Scripture, you don't have to listen to it. Because, because prophets, what they tell of God, their message from God, and they always speak what is true. Now, with that said, an important distinction as we get into understanding prophecy is the next point on your outline there. It is a misunderstanding only to think of prophecy in terms of foretelling future events. It is a misunderstanding only, only is an important word there, only to think of prophecy in terms of foretelling future events. Sometimes we use the word prediction, not in the sense of guessing what might happen, prediction in the sense of the Bible telling us what is going to still happen in the future. If you're like me, when you think of prophecy, the first thing we come, that usually comes to mind are texts that tell us what is yet still to happen. And that's part of it, but that is not all of it. The distant future is, all that, is not all that prophecy entails. In fact, according to Gordon Fee, who's a scholar who writes on these subjects, he said regarding Old Testament prophecies, and it's on your handout there, less than 5% of the Old Testament prophecies are describing what's still to come in the New Covenant. Less than 2% of Old Testament prophecies are messianic prophecies about the coming of Christ. Less than 1% of the Old Testament prophecies are about events yet to come still for us. So if you look at that, only about less than 8% of all the prophecies 
or the foretelling of things still to come outside the immediate future around the time of those people. So that means the majority, if you use Gordon Fee's numbers, about 92% of prophecies were more limited in their scope, and they're not so forward-thinking as we typically think of in prophecies. And if we only go to prophecies thinking of what is still to come, we miss out on a big percentage of what God wants to say to us. With that said, it says on your handout, their prophet's primarily, primary function was to speak to God, speak for God to their contemporaries. Their primary function was not foretelling what was to come. Their primary function was speaking on behalf of the Lord to their contemporaries. Where their contemporaries? Their peers, the people in their time, their day and age. And so the primary role of the prophet was not telling us what's going to happen in Jesus' second coming, though we get, we do have prophecies of that. Their primary function was speaking to people in their day and age. And so again, if all we think of in prophecy is what's yet to come, we miss a bulk of this genre of literature of truth that God has for us. As such, a lot of the prophetic books are narrative, historical narrative that we already talked about, and they're proclamation. There's a lot of teaching included in the, what we would typically call prophecies. And it's not on your handout, but you may want to jot it down here. Specifically in the Old Testament, prophets were covenant enforcers. The prophets were covenant enforcers. One of their primary jobs was to remind people, not of something new, not of something that was still to come, but to remind the people of the covenant that God had made with them. Therefore, the, the prophets now start sounding repetitive. There's blessings if you obey. There's, there's punishments and curses if you disobey. Because they're reminding people of the covenant. They're covenant enforcers. They're not saying anything new, but they still fall under the term prophet and prophecy. Now, with that said, where do you find prophecy in the Bible? And the answer is basically everywhere. Genesis to Revelation. You will find prophecy included throughout the totality of scripture. In a lot of what we describe in prophecy, you hear a lot about the prophets less directly from them. We hear more of the prophets have said things and less directly from them until you come to the prophetic books, what we call the major and the minor prophets at the end of the Old Testament. There you're hearing directly from the prophets themselves. The major prophets are the books that fall between Isaiah and Daniel, and then your minor prophets are what falls between Hosea to Malachi, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. Now, I'm pretty sure you know this, but it bears repeating. We call them major and minor prophets not because of their significance. And I think sometimes the way we read the Old Testament, we treat the minor prophets like they're insignificant and we never read them, right? Because we look at that like, what's in Amos anyway, right? You know? And so we don't really look at those, but it's not based on their message, based on their length. The major prophets were longer books, their minor prophets were shorter books. And when the canon of Scripture was put together, they were organized based on their length, not based on their importance. In fact, the 12 minor prophets, Hosea and Malachi, if you put all those together, their length is about the equivalent of something like an Isaiah or a Jeremiah. And in ancient Judaism, they would actually list those 12 books together, and they would call those 12 books one book, and they call them the 12. And they call them alongside the other major prophets as another major prophet, the a message from the 12 in that. The bottom line is wherever you find prophecy in the Bible, you're hearing directly from God via his prophets. You're hearing directly from God via his prophets. Now that leads us to the question of what we're tackling every week with these different genres. How do we understand prophecy in the Bible? And this again is a tough one. I don't feel we can do full justice to it tonight, but I hope it'll whet your appetite to study more and to, uh, and to go deeper in this particular genre. First, I got five principles for us here that I hope will help. The first principle there is on your handout. First of all, understand the book's background. Understand the book's background. This is going to sound a lot of what we've talked about previously in other genres. You ask questions of the text. 
And we talked about that with other books. Ask questions like, when was this book written? To whom was this book addressed? How would the original hearers have understood it? And so ask those type questions to make sure you understand what's happening in the life of the people around the time this was written, because it was written into a specific situation. And again, if you remember that part of the role of the Old Testament prophets that I mentioned a moment ago was to be covenant enforcers, when you get to the Old Testament prophets, you need to ask the question, what was going on in Israel at this time? Because those prophecies are not going to make any sense to us today if we don't understand what was happening historically and politically and even socially in the life of Israel at that point in time. But you ask the same questions even if you get to New Testament prophecies as well. You get to the book of the Revelation. And one of your questions needs to be as you read it, how would the earliest believers in Asia Minor have understood this when they got this letter? Because it was written to the churches in Asia Minor. And so how would they have understood this this in this day and age? Normally when I encourage people to study Scripture, in most genres I encourage you to study the Scripture directly itself before you ever consult commentaries or consult other Bible dictionaries. This is the one exception, and I hope this isn't bad counsel for us here, but when it comes to prophecy, I usually encourage people to start with the commentaries for this simple reason. How many of us are such great historians that we know what was happening in Asia Minor in AD 96 when, this, when, when Revelation was probably written? Maybe you guys are better historians than I am, but I can't tell you the top of my head what was happening around AD 96 in Asia Minor. Better yet, if we're going to understand Amos' prophecy, how much of us understood what was happening in Israel in B.C. 750 when that was written? Unless you're just like a massive historian with a great memory of history, most of us off the top of our head are probably not going to remember all those details. And again, because Amos was written in a particular time in Israel's history, Amos being a prophet who was a covenant enforcer, a lot of what he said being to the people in that day and age, we're not going to really understand what was happening in in his prophecy if we do not understand what was happening in history. And so what I'd recommend if you don't have one is get you a good study Bible. Here's my sales pitch. I'm not getting anything for this. You've heard me say, I really like the ESV study Bible. It's a monster of a study Bible. It's got lots of resources. Back when there was the big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico from the BP stuff, the running joke at the time was someone plugged the BP oil spill with their ESV study Bible. You know, I mean, it's, it's a monster of a volume of a resource. But, friends, it is great because if you get into the historical details, it'll make sense of a lot of things that we would miss in it. So, again, normally, if in any other genre, I'd say you pray over the text, and you go in, you read the scripture, you diagram it, you work with it, and then you go to the commentaries to make sure you're on the right, the right path. But because prophecy is so rooted in the historical setting, unless you know that, read the historical background, then, then get into the text and diagram it and work through it, and then make sure it's all lining up. So again, if you go to Amos, I mean, some of you may not off the top of your head you know, what was happening, but it, with a study Bible, you go into Amos and you go, oh, wow, from, from circa 780 to 745 B.C., the Assyrian Empire wasn't able to continue its presence that it put on the nations. Okay, there's something going on with what's happening in the surrounding countries here. Um, it's going to be true, true throughout history. Israelites took their wealth during this time and their prosperity to be unmistakable signs of the blessing of God. Thus, Israelites were reinforcing their belief that the day of the Lord would soon dawn in which God would subdue their enemies under their feet. So... What's going on in this time when Amos wrote, the surrounding nations that had oppressed them so were not oppressing them quite as much, and the people were finding prosperity they hadn't found before, and now they're thinking, oh, look, we've got God's blessing. The day of the Lord is coming. But in fact, that's not what it was, as the study Bible notes for us. But in fact, their present wealth and power was not evidence of the blessing of God. As Amos shows, they were actually under the curse of God because of their breaches of their covenant with him. With just a few sentences right there, all of a sudden, Amos starts making a lot more sense. 
because you now know what's happening historically. And there's like four pages of that. That's just a few summaries. And so now when you get into Amos, you're like, okay, now I get what was going on. The people had gotten haughty because they thought they were under the blessing of God, but they misunderstood what that was. Now the prophecies of Amos will make a lot more sense. And so this is a place where I'd really encourage you, if you don't have a good study Bible, pick up one. There's, there's other good ones besides this one. This is just the one that I've enjoyed over the last particularly seven year, several years. Now, second thing, besides understanding the background of the book and using tools to help with that, which, by the way, we're going to have a whole week towards the, in about five weeks, I think it is, towards the end of the study, where we're going to look at different resources available to you to help you. So if you're going, well, what are the other options besides that study Bible? I got more coming for you. Don't worry. We're going to have a night on that to give you some more resources. Now, number two, how to understand prophecy. Number two, understand the context. Again, this is going to sound a lot like interpreting historical narrative, right? Understand the context. Do not look at a verse in isolation. You can make, you can make lots of things say what you want to say out of isolation, like you do in historical narrative. Look at the prophecy as a whole to try to understand what the message of the prophecy is. With that said, many prophecies are given in what are called oracles. Oracles are like, par- like kind of think paragraphs or arguments in the epistles. The oracle is like the totality of a particular prophecy. So you're looking for those. You're looking for where the prophecy starts and ends with that. And with that said, when you look at particularly the prophetic books, they're collections of oracles. And if you're going, this chapter doesn't seem to line up with this chapter, well, they're different prophecies. They weren't designed to be read linearly, chronologically. They were just a recording of different prophecies from that particular prophet. And so you don't sit down reading it cover to cover, wondering if it's like a complete flow of thought like the book of Philippians might be. That's not how prophecy books are organized. They are collections of independent oracles from that prophet. And so with that said, you need to figure out where each oracle begins and ends. Well, how do we do that? Well, that's again where your study Bibles and commentaries come in handy. They usually give you titles and, you know, kind of paragraph breaks. But those are done by translators. They're not infallible. Only the Word of God is infallible. So compare several different ones. Don't trust just one. Look at several and see how different people interpret where these prophecies begin or end. Ask the Lord to guide you in your understanding of that. That leads to number three, which is really important for where we are in the study. And this will sound similar to things we talked about last week with poetry. But look for figurative language. Look for figurative language. Now, what is figurative language? I defined it last week, but for review, it is descriptive language that's not intended to be understood literally. It's descriptive language that's not to be understood literally. Now, we do this in all of our language. We do this in English. You know, my kids have an expression that some of you may use as well. They're like, Dad, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. When my kids tell me that, I don't correct them being like, that's foolishness. You're lying. It's impossible to eat a horse. Your stomach is only that big. The horse is that big. You know, we don't correct them. We understand that's figurative language, and it's, just, and it's used to describe how hungry they are. So it's talking about our culture. People are like, well, America's a melting pot. When you hear someone say that, you don't correct them being like, no, it's not. We're a geographical land of, of water and streams and, you know, earth and mountains. No. We get what they're saying. It's a collection of different cultures that have come together. Where if your parents ever sang to you a song when you were a kid, you are my sunshine, you know, you don't correct your parents on that one and be like, that can't be literally true. The sun is a ball of gas up in the, you know, it's a figurative language. We get that in, our langu- in all of our languages and we understand it as such. And we'll spend more time on figurative language in a few weeks on this. But realize that prophecies are packed full of this type of figurative language. Figurative language is where the meaning is literally true, but the words themselves are not literally true. Does that make sense? The meaning, we believe that all the Bible is literally true. When the Bible tells us that God covers us with, the, with his wings, 
doesn't mean God has wings. It's an image for us. And so we understand the meaning is literally true, but the words themselves are figures of speech to help us understand that literal meaning. When we get to prophecies, it's a genre that's full of emotion, like poetry. And so you'll find within the prophecies poetry. You'll find exaggeration. You'll find hyperbole. You'll even find cosmic imagery to help us understand God's judgment. You'll have imagery of the skies turning black, and you'll have imagery of lightning and all these things. And a lot of that is, is cosmic imagery to help us understand what's going on and what God is doing in his reign and his judgments on that. And so with that said, we're trying to get to authorial intent. Our goal is to let the text determine the meaning. We want to know what the author meant. And when authors wrote prophecy, the Spirit of God carried them along. Scripture is clear on that. But they wrote in a genre that people would understand. They, they expected the audience to understand this is prophetic writing. This will be figurative language. And so that was an understood assumption as you look at prophecy that this is what these words are going to be. So as we look at authorial intent, we need to understand those symbolic images as the author intended. So let's give some examples there on your handout. Amos chapter 3, verse 8. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Does that mean a lion literally roared? No. You see the image here. When a lion roars, people shake. A lion roars. It's about to pounce on its prey. The lion roaring here is an image for us that God is angry, that judgment is coming. How about Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18? Another beautiful figurative language for us. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So is there literally scarlet color and, and white colors here? Is there literally wool here? No. It's imagery for us to see what God is doing in forgiveness of sins. It's an image of forgiveness for us. It's figurative language to help us get what God's forgiveness is like. Likewise, how about Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 4? This is the, what is, literal, is later applied in Luke 3 to John the Baptist. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. Yet even ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Again, Luke chapter 3, this is applied to John the Baptist. But if you look at what happens in Luke 3, when John the Baptist comes, I don't recall anything about valleys being filled in with dirt, mountains and hills being leveled off. What's going on there? This is figurative language. There wasn't geographical change happening, topographical change happening when John the Baptist comes. There's an imagery of him making a path for the Messiah. He's preparing the way of the people to receive the Messiah. And the imagery force of hills being found. Think about if you watch interstates being built. And I, don't, I don't think any have been built in a while around here. But when I was a kid and they were building some interstates around Birmingham, it's fascinating to watch the big earth-moving machines knocking out mountains, filling in valleys to make a straight path for Interstate 49 to go around Birmingham. That's kind of the image here of it, not literally moving it, but making a straight path for what the Messiah was coming to do. It's a figurative language for us. And friends, if we don't understand this figurative language, we get in a little bit of a bind in interpreting things. And here's an example of that. Look at two passages in Isaiah here. First, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. It's probably a familiar image for you. It's the coming day of the Lord. This is a prophecy still yet to come. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, which, by the way, if you're a parent, that makes you cringe, right? And the winged child shall put his hand in the adder's den. 
They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right? We've all seen images of this, like little paintings in children's centers before of a lion laying alongside a lamb and a kid playing with all these dangerous animals. You know, we see these pictures of this, right? But also in Isaiah, look at the next passage. Which one is it? Isaiah 35, 8 through 10. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there. No, there shall be any ravenous beast come on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Which one is it? Are there lions that are laying with lambs or not? You know, one text says that the animals are all at peace, and one says there's no, ant, no ravenous beast there. Which one is it? Well, the point of it is this both. This has absolutely nothing to do with animals. This is figurative language to help us understand there's peace, total harmony, and all that God makes when, when there's the new heavens and the new earth. Once Christ returns in the Messianic kingdom, there is absolute peace and security. No hostility, no fighting, no strife, nothing. With that said, I don't know how mosquitoes fit in that picture if there are still insects and animals there. Because everything's in harmony, but everything is in harmony. The point of this has nothing to do with the animals. These are both true because these are both images, figurative language, to help us understand the truth. That in the forever kingdom, there's perfect harmony and peace. With that said, that also can influence how we interpret Revelation. So Revelation 21, and let me say up front, different people interpret this one differently, and so we need... Not one night, we need multiple months to try to tackle how we understand Revelation, and I'm not the one qualified to tackle that one. So we'll let CJ handle that one another, another time, right? Revelation chapter 21, four different verses here, verses 1 and 2 first. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates. Then verse 17, he also measured this wall, 144 cubits by human measurement. Now, granted, there are two different ways to interpret this text. One way that a lot of scholars do interpret this is in a figurative sense. What is the image here of Revelation? You have a wall that's 144 cubits. If you quickly do your math, that's 12 by 12. Okay? This 12 by 12 wall has 12 gates in it, and we know from the Scripture its gates are always open. What's going on here? Is this a literal description of a wall? Perhaps. There are godly people who interpret it that way. Some of you may interpret it that way. Other people interpret this as this is figurative prophetic language. What's the image here? What's the weakest part of a town's fortresses, basically, or the gates? And there's 12 of them, not one. There's 12 of the most vulnerable things put into this wall, and the gates are left open. And the wall itself is 12 by 12. Well, what is the image here? It's the image of absolute security in the forever kingdom. It's an image of absolute stability, no more war, nothing happening like that, peace and security in the new Jerusalem. And so either this is a literal wall with literal gates that convey to us how secure our future is in the new heavens and the new Jerusalem, or it's a figurative language like the prophets employ. Either way, we get the image here of this. There's peace and security coming in the new Jerusalem. So it's really important to look for and understand figurative language. Now, two more principles that are really important in trying to understand prophecy. This, first, this next one is really big also. There's two major categories of prophecy. Number four, they're conditional and unconditional prophecies. And this will shape how we understand the prophetic writings here. Conditional and unconditional. Now, let me say before we talk about them, <coughs> the text, to my knowledge, I do not know any instances where the text would directly say this is a conditional promise or a non-conditional promise. You've got to be the interpreter and look for clues in this and go digging to find out which one it is. How do you do that? You're going to read the context. You're going to see if any other scripture talks about that passage. 
But with that said, let's look at these two. Unconditional. Unconditional are prophecies that will certainly happen. No question, no ifs. They will certainly happen. These are prophecies related to the unalterable plans of God. The unchanging plans of God. Prophecies related to God's very nature here. So Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is not a conditional promise. There's nothing required of Abraham in this for this to happen. This is a prophecy that's not based on any of Abraham's doing. This is God's work. It's unconditional. God's redemptive plan involves blessing all the nations through Abraham and his line. Therefore, this is an unconditional prophecy. It will certainly happen, just as the Lord said. But a lot of the prophecies in the Bible are not like that. They are what we would call conditional prophecies. Sometimes these are, to my knowledge, all the conditional ones are related to coming judgment. So sometimes these are called judgment prophecies. But these are conditional prophecies. And the condition is, if the person repents, the, the prophesied judgment is not going to happen. If the person repents, or if the nation repents, the prophesied judgment will not happen. Classic case of this is Jonah and Nineveh. From probably familiar with that story, but Jonah chapter 3 here, starting in verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let's just stop there. He doesn't say, if you repent, this won't happen. He just says, here's the prophecy from the Lord. Here's thus saith the Lord. In 40 days, your city is going to be wiped out. Now, what happens? Next verse. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. When God saw what they did, this is now verse 10, how they turned from what God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So what do you make of that? Did God change his mind? No. Is Jonah a liar? No. What's going on here? This is a conditional prophecy. This is true of a lot of the ones throughout the Old Testament. The problem for us when we get to this is the conditions are not stated. We like a very literalistic reading. We want it to say something like, Jonah began to go in the city a day's journey, called out, Yet in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown unless you all put on sackcloth and ashes, call for a fast and begin to repent. But it doesn't say that. He just went in and said, In 40 days you're being wiped out. They repent. In 40 days you're not wiped out. Because Nineveh, the, the people there, Jonah, they all understood this was a conditional prophecy. And the condition itself was not stated. But the conditions were understood in the time. Look in the next verse there, Jeremiah chapter 18. This is where you get the overarching description of the conditions for these type prophecies. Jeremiah 18, starting in verse 5. And then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as, the potter, as this potter is done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, let's just stop right there. If you have any doubt about the absolute sovereignty of God, that verse should obliterate it right there. Do you hear what God is saying to his people? O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter is done? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand. That's saying, I can do with you whatever I want to do. I'm God, you're clay. I can do with you, fashion, whatever I want to do. I mean, and we see elsewhere in Scripture that imagery carried on in that. But, so we see the sovereignty of God in this. But that carries over to the next verse. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of this disaster that I intended to do to it. So it's a conditional prophecy. Again, every prophecy doesn't state this, but we have the overarching understanding as Jeremiah understood it, as Jonah understood it, as Amos, as all the prophets understood it. Then when God says, I'm going to wipe you out for your sin, the 
implied conditional part of this is if you repent, that prophecy will be undone. It will not come about, as has said. In fact, Jonah understood that. Go read Jonah chapter 4 when he pleads with the Lord. Lord, I know you're kind and merciful. That's why I don't want to go to the people. He got it. I mean, when, when God gave him the message to take the people, why did Jonah not want to go? Because he knew it was a conditional prophecy. If what he was delivering was an unconditional prophecy, then 40 days those people would be wiped out. He would have gone jumping up and down with that message. He would have loved to deliver that message. You're going to be obliterated in 40 days, people. You know, but he knew it wasn't, it wasn't unconditional. It was a conditional prophecy. And that's why he didn't want to go take it to them, because he knew the mercy of God and he knew that these people might repent. Now, with that said, friends, there's a bit of a mystery here for us. And our little tiny, finite brains have trouble putting this together. Because God is sovereign over all things. God says, I'm going to wipe you out. But his plan was for them to repent. So God used this prophetic utterance of coming doom to be the means by which the people were brought back to repentance. So God's sovereign plans all along for those people to repent in that situation. He just chose to use the messenger and the message of this, this coming judgment to bring about that repentance. And so we get into some of the mysteries of the providence of God in that. Now, with that said, though, we need to also realize these prophecies do not always lead to repentance. Even these conditional prophecies, sometimes the people fail to meet the condition. God, or the prophet, God speaks through the prophet and says judgment is coming. People don't repent. The judgment comes. So just because in Jonah's case it led to repentance doesn't mean it always does. The text that comes to my mind when I think about that is Isaiah chapter 6. Which I don't, have you heard Isaiah 6 preached at the missions conference before? Talk about things being out of context. This is one we use a lot of times out of context in missions festivals and stuff. Isaiah chapter 6 is, is the beginning of this fascinating passage. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. Train of his robe fills the temple. You see all these beings around the throne. It's fascinating. And you get to this favorite missionary text, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for me? And then I said, Here I am, send me. Stop there. That, that's how usually where the passage ends in missions conferences, right? This is why we stop right there, because this is what God says to, to Isaiah. Here's his, here's his mission. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, this is Isaiah speaking, How long, O Lord? And he, God said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. That's why I don't preach that whole text of missions festivals, right? Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this preach at missions festival, and they stop right there at verse, at verse 8. And I want to be like, um, can you keep reading? You know, I don't think this is what the people are going, here I am, send me. I mean, who's volunteering to go be the mouthpiece of, to people who are not going to believe when this is going to heap further destruction on them? Again, the importance of reading things in context on this. But here, this, this prophecy of God obliterating these people, basically, for their lack of belief, for their sin, it did not lead to repentance here. Isaiah became a messenger to further bring condemnation on them because the people were unwilling to repent. Now, last thing, and there are a lot of heavy things there. Number five here is identify whether or not the prophecy has been fulfilled. Identify whether or not the prophecy has been fulfilled. The vast majority of prophecies are about the immediate future. And I probably should have added a few more words on your hand out there. They're about the immediate future for Israel Judah and the surrounding nations. You may want to fill that in there on your handout. The vast majority of prophecies are about the immediate future for Israel, Judah, and the surrounding nations. That means they are not primarily about us and not primarily about things still to come. Again, if you use Gordon Fee's numbers, perhaps about 8% were about longer term things. About 92% were just 
reminders of the covenant or things related to their immediate future as being the people of Israel, Judah, or the surrounding nations. That means the vast majority or the vast majority of prophecies have already been fulfilled. And how do we know? Well, we have to look at context. How do we know? We see if the New Testament or anywhere else shows us that the prophecies have been fulfilled. And so we have to try to put them in that type of balance and that type of tension. There's not a quick, easy way on that besides studying, looking at broader context. Again, that's where study Bibles and other things come in handy. So with that said, I want us to look at one particular prophecy before we break up into our groups and just practice a few of these things before I let you have some fun with some of these tough texts in your small groups. And let me warn you, you've got some fun, tough ones to work through tonight in your small groups. But Isaiah chapter 13, I've got two verses for you just from Isaiah 13 on that next page of your handout. Listen to these verses. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Okay, so first glance we read that. It's really easy to look at that and be like, okay, this must be, this definitely has to be about the coming day of the Lord when Christ returns and brings judgment on the world. But is that what this text is really all about? Is it about the end of the age or is it about something else? Well, there's some questions that we've already been through and I need to ask, what is the background of this? Quick background is the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was prophesying around the time of 740 to 700 B.C. So this is about 700 years before Christ this particular prophecy comes. What is the context of the passage? Well, this immediately starts clarifying what this passage is all about. If you go to verse 1 of Isaiah 13, it says this, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. Well, wait, maybe this isn't about the end of the age, because it says very clearly, this is the oracle concerning Babylon. So even the context starts to define what is the scope of this particular prophecy. So this is 6th century Babylon empire that's in view. What's going to happen to that? You go a little bit further down in the text besides the passage I gave to you, like in verse 17. God says, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes, which is another powerful nation, the Medes against them, who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrows them. So just in a few verses, the beginning and the end, we quickly realize this is not a prophetic thing about the coming day of the Lord. This has to do everything with Babylon. In fact, it tells us about Babylon towards the beginning and the end of the text. Another question to look for, is there figurative language here? And yes, a lot of this is the figurative language of the judgment of God. Verse 10, the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Was this really speaking in terms of literally these things are going to quit shining? There's literal darkness? Probably not. Again, this is figurative language. Darkness is a symbol for judgment coming on the people. And so here, the, the prophet Isaiah is conveying the, the judgment of God is coming on the Babylonians by saying the stars and the constellations will cease to give light. It's cosmic imagery for the judgment of God. And is this prophecy fulfilled? Yes. You look at history, you look in your study Bibles to help you find this out. The Medes did conquer the Babylonians in 539 B.C. So within you know, 100 or so years of this being written, what was prophesied actually happened. So what do you do with this prophecy? Well, we're not using this clean of those verses now to look for the coming judgment of Christ's return. There's other prophecies that deal with that. This becomes for us historical. This helps us understand these people fell under the judgment of God because God will punish sin. And this now becomes a prophecy less for us about what's coming and a lot more about the character of God and how God will certainly punish evil 
in this world and eventually when there's the coming judgment. So that's just one example of how you can use some of those questions to try to bring clarity to prophecies that otherwise may not make sense. So here's our discussion questions for tonight to have fun with. Ready? Number one, do you feel confident in understanding prophecy in the Bible? What can you do to grow in your understanding of these texts? I can tell you up front, I, I don't feel confident in this. This is the week I've been more nervous about than the other week in our series, because this is the genre that is the most confusing to me of all the genres. What can you do to grow in your understanding of these texts? Number two, I want you to read Micah 3.12. So someone pull out your Bible, read Micah 3.12. Then answer this one question. Is it a conditional prophecy or an unconditional prophecy? Y'all kind of banner back and forth on that, and then I've given you a clue after you decide, come to group consensus. Then go read Jeremiah 26.17 through 19 and see if that changes your answer or not, okay? So don't jump ahead, read that first, talk about it, and then go to Jeremiah. Similarly, question three, read Jeremiah 31, 31 to 35. Is that prophecy fulfilled or not yet fulfilled? So y'all think about it for a minute, and then after you think about it for a minute, then go read Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, to let that shed light on it and see if that changes your answers or not. Finally, I will give you a text that that people interpret in different ways. So no fighting tonight. Genuine believers have very different interpretations of this text. So I'm going to throw out one out there for you that's not very, that's not always clear cut. But Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. I want you to read that one. This is one that's been quoted in Acts chapter 2. When, when Pentecost happens and Peter's explaining, hey, these people aren't drunk. It's still early in the morning. This is what the prophet Joel said would happen when the Spirit falls. And so Peter applies Joel's prophecy to what happens at Pentecost. Now, some interpreters believe that prophecy was completely fulfilled at Pentecost. Like that prophecy is one that's totally fulfilled, nothing left to be fulfilled out of that. And they see all the com- cosmic imagery is figurative. And when you read Joel's prophecy, you'll see all the cosmic imagery in it. They say that's all figurative to show what God is doing. Other people who love the Lord just as much, there's not any less love of the Lord, any less belief in Scripture, they believe that prophecy was partially fulfilled at Pentecost, but there's a greater fulfillment still to come in the second coming when those cosmic signs will literally occur. So you have two different groups of people who both love Jesus. Some see this as totally figurative, and some see it as still literal things that are to happen. Which have you heard talk? Where do you come down on it? Don't argue about it. Christians can agree to disagree on this. This is tertiary, but I thought I'd throw that out there just to let you have some fun with a difficult text. Do, do as much as you can for about the next 20 minutes, and I want you to do what we've done each of the last few weeks. Take the last 10 minutes or so and share prayer requests and take some time to pray for one another and encourage one another in prayer. And after the hard week last week with Proverbs and this week with Prophecy, we get a much lighter week next week, and that's the parables, which I am really excited to get to. So if y'all will uh, divide up into groups like you typically divide up, I think a lot of our normal group leaders are here. So if you'll just kind of break yourself up into small groups like you typically would do and have fun with these questions. God bless y'all.